0: The weekend of July 13th, I was in Chicago, Illinois, on the shores of Lake Michigan, attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival. The event was amazing. Nearly 100 True Crime Podcast creators were on hand, along with literally hundreds of listeners and fans. The event featured meet and greets, booths, panels, live shows. It was a whirlwind day. And I had an amazing time. Part of that good time was working with the talented Stephen Pacheco, host of Trace Evidence. Stephen and I presented the horrifying, unresolved story of family annihilator William Bradford Bishop. This week, I bring that episode to you. Already Gone will be back with a new mystery from Michigan on August 15th.
1: Bethesda, Maryland is a quiet suburb of Washington, D.C., sitting in Montgomery County, Its proximity to the nation's capital typically results in drawing in the families of those who work in D.C., who make the 7-10 to mile commute each day. Bethesda is home to the main campus of the National Institute of Health, as well as Walter Reed Medical Center, with many involved in the medical profession living nearby. Bethesda has, multiple times, received the title of Best Educated City in America due to the large percentage of its population boasting graduate and professional degrees, Bethesda is also known as a wealthy area that, over the years, has been granted titles such as America's Most Livable City and has been listed on Time Magazine's list of top earning towns. Over the years, Bethesda has continued to grow and expand, with the peak of its population striking in 1970, clocking in at just over 71,000 residents. Believed to be a safe and attractive area, one which drew in many young families with its good schools and beautiful homes. Everything would change in March of 1976, when a horrifying and hideous crime rocked the citizens of Bethesda and catapulted the area into national headlines. On March 8, 1976, at approximately 12 noon, a female caller contacted the Montgomery County Police Department. According to the woman, she was concerned about the well-being of her neighbors, the Bishop's. The Bishop home, located at 8103 Lilystone Drive in the Carderock Springs Historic District, has, had been exceptionally quiet for days, and as the neighbors explained, she hadn't seen any members of the family for approximately one week. For Montgomery Police, it wasn't exactly an urgent call, and the immediate assumption was that the family had gone out of town without telling their neighbor. But the caller argued that the family, the bishops, always told her when they were going out of town. She had keys to the home and would take in their mail and water their plants for them. The Montgomery Police Department decided to dispatch a detective to the location for a welfare check, a fairly routine act, but on this day, it would be anything but routine. Just days earlier, on March 2nd, Wilma Swain was working her post at a watchtower five miles south of Columbia, North Carolina. The tower granted Swain a view of more than 40 miles in all directions, and she quickly noted smoke emanating from a wooded area along the side of North Carolina Highway 94, approximately a mile from the tower. Swain quickly radioed Ronald Brickhouse, a North Carolina forestry service ranger. Brickhouse arrived at the fire just off Burton Shell Road at approximately 1 p.m. The fire was burning along nearly three acres of brush, and after 10 minutes of trying to get it under control, Brickhouse returned to his vehicle to radio for backup. While making his way back through the area towards his truck, Brickhouse made a grisly discovery. In an interview with the Washington Times, Brickhouse explained, quote, I saw a pile of dirt and walked over, and there were two bodies lying in the hole. It's the first time I ever saw anything like that. My belly turned, and I hustled out of there and called for the sheriff. Brickhouse radioed back to Swain, asking her to send the sheriff, though he did not specify why. For the moment, she thought he'd found an illegal growth of marijuana, or possibly a still being run by moonshiners. It would be hours before she would learn the true horror of what was unfolding. While Brickhouse waited, he found himself going back towards the scorched earth, at which time he found a gas can nearby, still burning. Beyond the gas can, he noted also a shovel and a pitchfork. It had recently rained in the area, and so the earth was muddy, and Brickhouse saw fresh tire marks. He determined that the fire could only have been burning for an hour or so before he'd arrived on the scene, and just as he was trying to figure out who could do something like this, he was joined by Sheriff Royce Rhodes, Deputy Edward Davis Jr., and Game Warden Carl Willis. Without saying much, still struggling with the horror show he'd uncovered, Brickhouse directed the men towards the pit, later described as four feet deep and approximately the width and length of a bathtub. Once Sheriff Rhodes saw the charred bodies, he immediately reached out to the State Bureau of Investigation for assistance, and they dispatched agents Lewis Young, Lenny Wise, and William Godley, who arrived shortly thereafter. Initially, two bodies were easily visible to all at the scene, but when Agents Wise and Godley climbed down into the pit and began the process of removing the bodies, the horror only became greater. Beneath the two bodies, identifiable as adult females, there were also the remains of three male children. The smaller bodies were scorched, though not completely consumed by the fire, leaving authorities with little to indicate their identities. The two adult women were fully dressed. The three young boys were wearing the remnants of pajamas. The older woman wore a pantsuit with an overcoat that had fur trim. The younger woman was dressed in jeans, a denim jacket, and tennis shoes, along with what appeared to be either a wedding or engagement ring with a diamond. Aside from pajamas... Two of the boys' heads were wrapped in towels, which was believed to have been done to stem the bleeding during transportation. When asked about it later, Sheriff Rhodes replied, quote, It was something I've never seen before or since, and I hope to God I never see again. There were no missing persons reports in the area that fit the description of the victims, and so their remains were taken to North Carolina Memorial Hospital in Chapel Hill, in hopes of determining identification. Without knowing the origins of the victims, it would be even more complicated to try and track the suspect or suspects. They had only few clues to work with. Remnants of the clothing worn by some of the victims had labels listing several store names. The younger female victim had shoes from a Hans shoe store. The older was wearing a coat purchased at Saks Fifth Avenue. In addition to the clothing, there was also a price tag on the shovel, which held the letters... OCH space HD Sheriff Rhodes made a public appeal through the media for anyone who may have any knowledge of the victims identi- identities though he specified that he did not believe them to be local beyond the public appeal Rhodes also reached out to law enforcement in neighboring counties to ask them to go through recent missing persons cases for any case that might fit with their discovery Rhodes also requested nearby law enforcement agencies to reach out to local schools to determine if there were any children, like brothers, missing from school. By the next morning, March 3rd, many of the state's top investigators were at the scene while the SBI set up a mobile command post near the county courthouse. The autopsies would be conducted the following day and overseen by Dr. Paige Hudson, the state's chief medical examiner. Pending further information from the pathologist, it was a matter of trying to piece together what few clues they had in hopes of determining identities.
0: In an interview with CNN, Agent Young explained that he and a colleague spent hours driving around looking for a hardware store in the area whose name would fit with the price tag, but the search was unsuccessful. The next step was to send information out to law enforcement branches throughout the country. While it seemed like a long shot at the time, they did receive a response. The Washington Metropolitan Police Department notified Young that in the nearby town of Potomac, Maryland, there was a store called Poke's Hardware. Around this same time, Shelton Ludford of the Terrell Hardware Company was able to provide the manufacturer's number to investigators, at which time they were informed that the shovel had indeed been sold to that hardware store. In addition to the hardware store... Young also verified the names of nearby stores, Hans' Shoe Store, as well as Saks Avenue, not far away, matching locations from which the victim's clothing originated. Not sure of what to do, Young and his colleague proceeded up to Potomac, where they spoke with the owner and employees of the hardware store. And ultimately, left with little to go on, Young posted a flyer in the store showing photographs of their yet unidentified victims that had been taken in the morgue. Several days would pass before they received a call about the flyer. Back in Bethesda, on Monday, March 8th, Detective Joe Sargent received a call from the station. He was dispatched to the Bradford family home in response to the neighbor's report about them possibly being missing. When Sargent arrived, he pulled into the driveway, which was shared with the neighbors, and found the neighbor who had phoned in the report waiting for him. At this time, Sargent was given the neighbor's set of keys to the house and he made the decision to go in and check things out. On the way toward the home, he noted envelopes stuffed into the mailbox and several unopened newspapers lying on and around the front steps. Upon closer inspection, Sargent noted splashes of blood on the doorstep. Detective Sargent's belief that this would just be a routine check went out the window as he opened the front door and found more droplets of blood leading toward the den, and then up carpeted stairs toward the master bedroom. As Sergeant climbed the stairs, he noticed splattered blood along the walls. At the top of the stairs, he decided not to proceed further without calling the scene in, but one of the bedroom doors was slightly ajar, and from his position, Sergeant could see what was later described as a house of horrors. Sargent explained, quote, On the walls, the ceiling, anywhere you looked, there was blood. It was plain to see that something terrible happened here. Sergeant, who at this time had been a police officer for more than a decade, would describe this as the absolute worst crime scene he'd ever observed. Sergeant radioed for assistance, and multiple units arrived at the home, which was quickly taped off, and the process of going over the scene to determine what may have happened began... Hearing Sergeant's call, one of the radio operators for the department remembered seeing the flyer posted at the hardware store. Sergeant was informed about the five bodies that had been discovered in North Carolina days earlier, and when a copy of the flyer was brought to the scene, the neighbor who made the initial call, she was able to positively identify the bodies as those of the Bishop family. The victims were Annette Bishop, age 37, her mother-in-law, Lobelia, age 68, and the Bishop family's three sons, William, age 14, Brenton, age 10, and Jeffrey, age 5. Friends and neighbors described the Bishop family as living a storybook life. Annette and Bradford had been high school sweethearts and seemed to genuinely love one another. After high school, Bradford had gone on to attend Yale while Annette went to Berkeley. They'd married and started a family right away. Annette was repeatedly described as very attractive and fit. At the time of her death, she was taking art classes at the University of Maryland and was highly involved in a tennis program at the country club where she was scheduled to perform in a doubles tournament the next week. Lobelia, even in her late 60s, was described as active as well, with neighbors saying they frequently saw the older woman jogging down the driveway. The boys, they were active too, with Brent performing on the school swim team, while Brad played baseball, performed gymnastics, and swam. The youngest, Jeffrey, he was only in nursery school, but I would imagine he was on the same course as his older brothers. Now, it didn't take long for investigators to notice that one member of the Bishop family, their beloved dog, Leo, a golden retriever, as well as the family station wagon, a maroon Chevy Malibu, were both missing. The family's Volkswagen Beetle was still parked on the side of the house, suggesting that the killer, either Bradford himself or an unknown suspect, left the scene in the station wagon. A witness would later report a vehicle matching the station wagon's description in the vicinity of the location where the bodies had been found in North Carolina. At the time, they didn't know yet if 39-year-old William Bradford Bishop Jr. was a victim a perpetrator. Neighbors seemed to have less information about Bradford, though he was also described as active, and several noted that he enjoyed riding a motorcycle. The family had only lived in the neighborhood for two years. By the next day, March 9th, the story broke and headlines were splashed with grisly accounts of the scene, the intensity of the murders, and the details about where they had been taken and how the bodies had been disposed of. Police confirmed to the media that bloodstains had been found in all four bedrooms, in addition to blood spatter and droplets throughout the house, on the front steps, and in the driveway. Officer Mike McNally, who had been present at the home, explained to the Washington Times how brutal the murders were. In one of the children's bedrooms, he noted hammer marks on the ceiling above the top bunk, stating, quote, the number of marks, you know, how many times he must have hit his son bloody fingerprints were discovered in the home's bathroom and they were later confirmed to be those of william bradford bishop junior leading investigators to believe that he was indeed the perpetrator and not a victim dr hudson the pathologist back in chapel hill with the victim's remains he spent 8 hours conducting autopsies and determined that all five victims had been bludgeoned to death with a hammer Hudson explained that the brutality with which the hammer had been wielded was quite extensive, saying, quote, When you cave somebody's head in with one blow, why keep hitting them? The fact that there were so many bruises to the children struck me as odd. Hudson also specified that while the beatings had been savage, Lobelia, Bradford's mother, had received the least violent attack out of the group, and that in some instances, Her wounds may have been survivable. Dr. Hudson surmised that Lobelia may have been smothered after being lightly struck or perhaps died as a result of shock and fright. Dr. Robert Albanese, a county medical examiner, estimated that it likely took the suspect more than an hour to dig the hole in which the bodies had been tossed. And he does specify that they were thrown into the hole. They were not placed. The time of their death was ultimately determined to have been late in the evening on March 1st or early in the morning on March 2nd. For almost everyone looking at the case, investigators and reporters alike, they had one major question. Where is William Bradford Bishop?
1: In an attempt to track down Bradford, authorities were able to obtain his place of work from friends and neighbors, which, as it turned out, was at the State Department, where he held the position of Assistant Chief of Special Trade Activities. After interviewing several individuals at the downtown office, investigators were informed that on March 1st, Bishop had left work early at approximately 5.30 p.m., claiming he was coming down with the flu. Most of his co-workers described Bradford as a highly respected man who was kind and intelligent, a man that loved his family. When asked if Bradford seemed upset or out of the ordinary on the 1st, only one person reported anything strange about Bradford's behavior that day. A coworker and friend, Roy A. Harold Jr., told investigators that he had seen Bradford exiting the building Monday evening. According to Harold, he had spoken with Bradford, who was visibly upset. Reportedly, Bradford explained that he'd been passed over for a promotion and he was taking it hard. Harold tried to calm him down and then hailed a cab for Bradford who also told him that he was leaving early due to illness. Harold is the last person to see Bradford at the State Department that day. Over the course of the next several days, with a lot of canvassing and interviewing prospective witnesses, authorities began to piece together the comings and goings of Bradford on the day his family was murdered. After leaving his office in Foggy Bottom at approximately 5.30 p.m., Bradford went to his bank from which he withdrew $200. After the bank... Bradford proceeded over to the Montgomery Mall, where he purchased a 2.5-pound mini sledgehammer and a 2.5-gallon gas can from the Sears department store. Bradford then drove to a gas station next to the mall, filling the can and the tank his Family Station Wagon. After these purchases, he went to Polk's Hardware, just a few miles from his home, where he made his final purchase of a shovel and a pitchfork. Police believe that Bishop arrived home sometime between 6.30 and 8.30 p.m. At the time of his arrival, his mother was out walking the dog, and police speculate that Bradford entered the home and first murdered Annette before attacking his mother, Labelia. upon her return home. He then proceeded into the children's bedrooms and bludgeoned them in their sleep. Reportedly, after committing the murders, Bradford carried the bodies one by one from the house into the station wagon. He then took the family dog, got into the driver's seat, and began the 300-mile drive south to rural North Carolina, where he parked, dug the hole, tossed the bodies in, and set them ablaze before driving off. All in all, from the time Bradford murdered his family to the moment he drove away from the horrific funeral pyre, less than 16 hours had passed. It took authorities an additional week to piece things together, and by the time that they discovered Bradford was behind the gruesome killings, he'd already vanished, and they didn't have the first clue of where he could have gone. An all-points bulletin was placed on the vehicle, and police departments all around the eastern seaboard were notified of the crime, given a description of Bradford, and warned that he was likely armed and dangerous. By March 12th, Maryland police obtained a murder warrant for Bradford while the FBI obtained one for interstate flight. At this time, extensive examination of Bradford's background was underway, and his financial records were being looked at. It was through financial records that they were able to determine some of his travels after disposing of the bodies. On March 2nd, the same day the bodies were set aflame, Bradford used his credit card to purchase a pair of tennis shoes in Jacksonville, North Carolina, some 150 miles to the southwest of Columbia. John Wheatley, who owned the sporting goods store, reported seeing Bradford in the company of an unidentified female. According to Wheatley, the woman stood nearby holding the leash to Bishop's dog. Wheatley described the woman as wearing a beautiful dress and he thought she may have been Caribbean and she had dark skin. When asked about their behavior around one another, Wheatley told the Baltimore Sun, quote, they seem very much like a couple. The following day, March 3rd, a waitress in Wilmington, 60 miles south of Jacksonville, reported that a man fitting Bradford's description had entered the copper kettle pancake house where she worked. The man behaved oddly, tipping the waitress $2 before she even served him. After eating, he reportedly insulted a few black patrons before tipping the waitress an additional dollar, saying that he needed to get back on the road. At this time, investigators believe Bradford was still in the country, so police began patrolling airports in Maryland, North Carolina, and Florida on the off chance that he might try to escape. During their search of the Bishop home, the passports of all family members were located. However, Bradford had a diplomatic passport and had traveled extensively for his job. That passport was not recovered from the residence. The State Department stated that his possession of a diplomatic passport would not in any way give him any special advantages when it came to trying to leave the country, though. It was a race against time, as soon Dr. Herbert Clue, a psychiatrist and special agent for the FBI, noted that Bradford had been taking a prescription medication known as Cerax, and that without his medication he may become suicidal and should be considered armed and extremely dangerous 10 days after police entered the bishop home and made their horrifying discovery they'd get the next major break in trying to track down bradford on march 18th c e henricks a national park ranger received reports of an abandoned vehicle in the elkmont campground in great smoky mountains national park near gatlinburg tennessee Upon arrival, Hinrichs found a 1974 maroon Chevy Malibu station wagon with the license plate DFL 896. He stood behind the wagon, jotting the plate down in his notepad, and then he glanced through the back window. In the rear of the vehicle, he noticed the unmistakable sight of large quantities of dried blood. Hinrichs notified the police, and by 3:30 p.m., ten FBI agents from the nearby Knoxville office were on the scene. The area was quickly sealed off, and investigators began a forensic examination of the vehicle, which had been reportedly sitting in the lot since March 6th. Inside the Chevy, investigators found bloody clothes, a bloody blanket, a shotgun, an axe, a package of personal hygiene items, maps of the Smoky Mountains National Park, the credit card receipt from the shoes purchased in Jacksonville, prescription bottles with Bradford's medication still inside, dog treats, dog prints, and dog fur. The vehicle had blood all over the interior, interior. The wheel well, which housed the spare tire, contained inches of thick, congealed blood. The area in which the vehicle was found was near a popular hiking trail. Investigators considered that Bradford, who was known to enjoy camping, fishing, and getting out into nature, may have packed some items and headed into the densely forested National Park which covers more than 520,000 acres. Notifications were sent out to anyone planning to or already hiking the trail to be on the lookout and consider terminating their hikes early to avoid running into Bradford. The same day the Bishop vehicle was found, Bradford's wife, mother, and three young sons were arriving in California for burial.
0: Back at the park, bloodhounds were utilized to track Bradford's scent from the vehicle, and over the course of the next few days, FBI agents and park rangers gathered up in teams coming through the area. Early on, FBI agents received information that a man fitting Bradford's description had appeared at the Sugarlands Visitor Center in early March, days after the killings, and he requested a map while mentioning that he'd camped there before. One of the tracking dogs did detect Bradford's scent at the visitor center, though ultimately none of the dogs were able to lead investigators to him. Later, a wingtip-style shoe was recovered from along the Appalachian Trail. Though it couldn't be directly tied to Bradford, it did seem out of place. Searchers covered a wide swath of land for a week, but on March 26th, all searches were called off due to a lack of results and a lack of resources. A shallow grave was discovered a few weeks later near Newt Prong, an isolated stream known for drawing casual fishing. Ranger Dwight McCarter went to the grave and took photographs of it, showing multiple stones stacked on top of one another and a makeshift and a makeshift cross made of sticks bound together with parachute cords. McCarter elected not to dig the grave up though he long suspected it was likely the resting place of Leo, the Bishop family dog. Years later, when others went to look for the grave, the area was overgrown and the cross had been lost to time. The discovery of the station wagon seemed to confirm everything investigators had surmised, that William Bradford Bishop, for reasons unknown, had left his job, purchased the items necessary for his crime, and then brutally murdered his entire family before moving the bodies, setting them on fire, and abandoning his car in the Great Smoky Mountains. Unfortunately, the station wagon would be the last major piece of evidence investigators would find. Whether Bradford had hiked down the trail and spent time in the forest, or was even still there, or if he'd flown out of the country, run off somewhere else, they just couldn't say. Searches were being conducted in multiple states, from the area of Spindale, North Carolina, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and even some locations in Florida. The story had gone international, with major newspapers all around the world talking about the savage crime and displaying photos of the man believed to have committed the crime. Law enforcement now knew who was responsible for killing the Bishop family and how the murders played out, but the lingering question for everyone was, why? What had led William Bradford Bishop to, seemingly on the spur of the moment, murder his entire family and flee? In the hopes of discovering that answer, investigators would need to first determine who William Bradford Bishop was. Born in Pasadena, California on August 1, 1936, Bradford was the son of a geologist William Bradford Bishop Sr., and a stay at home mother, Lobelia Amaryllis, who at one time had dreamed of being a Hollywood actress or professional singer. Bradford was an only child, and little is known about his early years outside of the fact that his mother seemed to have doted on him and he was noted for being remarkably intelligent. Jacques Dumbois, a renowned ballet dancer, met Bradford when he was 14. Bradford's parents were big fans of the ballet, and according to D'Amboise, he lived with the family for a short period of time when he was 17. D'Amboise described teenage Bradford as incredibly smart and determined, saying that they played games together and Bradford was always exceptionally determined to win. D'Amboise kept in touch with Bradford over the years and actually had plans to stay with the family through March 2nd, 1976. The day after the killing, but due to an injury, D'Amboise had to cancel. In his memoir, he wondered quote, Had Carrie and I been with them, would we have added our blood to the house? Would we have been in the fire pit? Or would our presence somehow have deflected or deferred the killings? D'Amboise is still alive. He just turned 84, making him just a couple of years older than the subject of today's case. Bradford attended Pasadena High School, where he would meet Annette Weiss. Weiss was born in Ohio, but raised in Southern California. The two were quickly drawn to one another and began a relationship which would run for the rest of Annette's life. Bradford graduated in 1954 and went on to attend Yale, where he studied economics. According to college friends, Bradford was incredibly smart, even for the Yale crowd, He played football his freshman year and often spoke about possibly becoming a doctor. Bradford dropped out of Yale for a year at one point, but he returned and graduated in 1959. After obtaining his bachelor's degree, Bradford married Annette in August of 59, and days later, on August 7th, he enlisted in the United States Army. In the Army, Bradford was enrolled in intelligence school in Baltimore. A year later, he studied serbo-creation— Excuse me. While I try to figure out how to pronounce Serbo-Croatian, let's have a word from our sponsor. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something holding you back from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed professional counselors, specialists in issues like depression, anxiety, relationships, and more. Connect with your BetterHelp counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and using BetterHelp is so convenient. Access the support you need at your own time and pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your counselor. Chat and text options are also available. If you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one. Best of all, BetterHelp is affordable. Listeners have already gone. Get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. Get started today. Visit betterhelp.com gone and complete a questionnaire to be matched with a counselor. Start feeling better now. Visit betterhelp.com slash gone for 10% off your first month. Serbo, Croatian in the Army's Language School in Monterey, California. It was here that Annette would give birth to their first son in 1961. Just over a week after the happy occasion, Bradford was assigned to the 163rd Military Intelligence Battalion. This required shipping over to Europe, and once they were fit to travel, Annette and their son, William Bradford Bishop III, would join him. While Bradford would be stationed in multiple areas over the next two years, he spent the vast majority of his time in Italy. Bradford loved traveling, and he loved being abroad, but he wasn't fond of his work, which consisted mostly of translating Serbo-Croatian papers and books to English. In 1963, Bradford, now with the rank of Staff Sergeant, accepted an honorable discharge. The family chose to stay in Italy a while longer, with Bradford enrolling in Italian classes at the Florence campus of Middlebury College. After completion, the family left Italy, returning to Pasadena, where Annette would give birth to their second son, Brenton Germain Bishop. By 1965, Bradford was in Washington, D.C., where he entered the State Department's foreign service program. It didn't take long for him to climb the ladder, as by November of 65, he was promoted to Foreign Service Officer Grade 7. His first overseas assignment would come the next month, just days before Christmas, when he and his family traveled to Ethiopia, where Bradford worked as a junior officer in the U.S. Embassy. In January of 68, Bradford transferred to Milan, Italy, where he would stay until the following year after receiving another promotion. In 1970, the family returned to California, where Bradford would attend UCLA, graduating a year later with a master's in African studies. That same year, the family would welcome their third and final son, Jeffrey Carter Bishop. Not long after the birth of Jeffrey, Bradford returned to Washington, at which time he was assigned to the East African Office of the Bureau of African Affairs. Bradford's father passed away around this time, and his mother, Lobelia, came to live with the family in Washington, and just one year later, in 1972, she would travel with them to Gaborone, Botswana, where Bradford was assigned as deputy chief, second only to the ambassador himself. The family remained in Botswana for two years before returning to the United States, where they purchased a split level home for $100,000 in 1974. The house was located at 8103 Lily Stone Drive, Bethesda, Maryland. The beautiful home, which the family loved, would just two years later become the scene of five brutal murders. And if you are interested, the house is on Zillow, and the listing features some photos of the interior. It's worth mentioning that the house is largely unchanged from its layout at the time of the murders. According to friends, the Bishop family seemed perfect. Annette was an artist and an athlete who was afforded time to pursue her interests, as Lobelia was happy to step in and perform the day-to-day work of being the family's mother figure. Two of their sons were athletes, with the third likely going to pursue the same path. Eight-millimeter film shows the family laughing, joking around, and embracing. In one, Bradford sits in a chair on the front lawn holding Jeffrey in his arms. Less than two years later, he will murder Jeffrey, along with the rest of his family, using a a two-and-a-half-pound mini sledgehammer. How could that happen? What would drive someone to commit such a heinous crime against his own family? There are several different perspectives on this.
1: Friends and colleagues noted that Bradford's biggest fear was that someday he'd find himself tied to a desk job at the State Department, and in January of 1975, that's exactly what happened. Bradford was given the position of Assistant Chief of Special Trade Activities and Commercial Treaties. Reportedly, Bradford loved traveling, being out in the field, and getting his hands dirty. Several friends said he had a genuine disdain for bureaucrats and was worried that sitting behind a desk all day he would become what he despised. Instead, he chose to focus on becoming an ambassador, no easy task by any measure. Everyone knew he was going after the position, looking to be promoted from within the State Department. On March 1st, 1976, the promotion listing was posted and Bradford didn't make it. According to friend and colleague Roy Harrell Jr., there may have been more to this story. Harrell, in several interviews, noted that Bradford had an inferiority complex, but also a large ego. According to Harrell, both Bradford's mother and wife told him his career was a dead end and that he wasn't going to get anywhere he desired. When the promotion list came out, Harold suspected that aside from being the straw that broke the camel's back, it may have caused Bradford to fear the response of his family to what, in his eyes, was a failure to achieve and his violent and vicious acts may have been a way to silence their criticisms. There were also reports at the time that the Bishop family were experiencing some financial issues. How severe the issues were depends on whose opinion you believe. In some places, the issues are described as fairly minor. In others, there is speculation that the Internal Revenue Service was auditing the family's tax returns, though the IRS would neither confirm nor deny their involvement with the Bishop's finances. We know that at the time of the murders, Bradford was making $25,962 a year. That translates to around $117,000 a year today. This income wouldn't stretch far in Bethesda, especially living in a $100,000 house. A house valued at more than half a million dollars today, belonging to country clubs, paying for private schools, sports for the kids, and college for a net with whom it's been said— Bradford was frustrated as she was looking to expand her horizons while he wanted her to simply be a stay-at-home mom. Beyond that, Bradford wanted his career to take them back into the world, traveling abroad, but Annette was hesitant, wanting to provide a stable life for the children while not wanting to give up her academic pursuits. There have also been comments that Bradford's relationship with his mother was tense, defined by some as strained but salvageable. The origin of the issues between Bradford and his mother are unknown, but if indeed they were having problems with money, moving his mother into the family home could have exacerbated things. One possible point of contention may also have been related to finances, as it's been reported that Lobelia fronted Bradford $30,000 as a down payment on the Bethesda home. But was this really enough to make a man murder his entire family and disappear? or was there a darkness growing inside of him for a long time?
0: Reportedly, after the murders, the State Department became aware of Bradford's psychiatric history, which had been previously hidden. Records indicate that Bradford initially contacted and visited with a psychiatrist during his time at UCLA between 1970 and 1971. The visit was allegedly related to mood issues and insomnia, Before leaving for Botswana later in 72, he visited a physician and complained that he was experiencing back pain, though the doctor could find no cause and determined that the symptoms were likely psychosomatic, referring him to a second psychiatrist. During his time in Botswana, Bradford was also reported to have continued complaining of back issues and seeing doctors, failing to mention his previous visits stateside. Upon return to the U.S. in 1974, Bradford began seeing his third psychiatrist, and this time he was given a prescription, Syrax, which at the time was prescribed to assist with depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Cerax is a brand name for oxazepam, a benzodiazepine which today is used for treating anxiety or alcohol withdrawal, while also functioning as a sleep aid for insomniacs. Like many medications, Serax has a long list of side effects, though in this case, the ones that draw the most interest are amnesia, forgetfulness, trouble concentrating, tremors, sleep disturbances, and mental and mood changes. Less common side effects include hallucinations, restlessness, confusion, anger, and aggression. I should note, in many descriptions of Bradford, it's said that he loved drinking scotch and wine— and oxazepam, when mixed with alcohol, can cause impairment to thinking and judgment as well as dizziness, drowsiness, and difficulty concentrating. Bradford's last psychiatrist, the one who prescribed the medication, soon after closed down his private practice and returned to military service. When a reporter from the Honolulu Advertiser asked the doctor about Bradford, he would not answer any questions, citing doctor-patient privilege and saying, quote, if he turns up, he could sue me. The psychiatrist passed away in 2005, and remember, Serax was found in the station wagon, suggesting that Bradford had either stopped taking it or would run out, and so notifications were sent around the country to pharmacies. However, Dr. Clue of the FBI added that without the drug, Bishop could get extremely depressed. Stopping a drug like this cold turkey can lead to some difficult side effects and withdrawal symptoms. One item which may grant insight into the mind of of William Bradford Bishop was his diary. The diary had an interesting journey, having been auctioned off with the contents of the Bishop family home in July of 76. A woman later purchased the book from a flea market in Greensboro, North Carolina in 2000. On the first page it said, Bradford Bishop Diary. And when the woman's son looked him up, she contacted police and handed the book over. In the diary, Bradford discusses some of his issues, including insomnia. And as the years progress through the diary, the more erratic his handwriting seems to become, moving from neatly scrawled lines to jagged, jutting sentences that veer off the lines. One entry from February 27, 1967, reads in part, quote, "'Toxic. Degenerative.' psychosis. Chronic, low-level maniac. Involutional megalomania. Six months later, in August of 67, he writes, I am getting better. I am on the threshold. I recognize now that to twist my accursed confines, I must develop a continuing and constant sense of surging for confidence, awe and becoming, and love. This is my greatest challenge— For this has always been the great impediment to freedom and total self-realization, to burst the bounds. Another entry dated 1971, The Year the Diary Ends, reads in part, quote, "'Your family grows more beautiful, and still you stand on the threshold. Outwardly, your accomplishments are great. My, such symbols, promotions, citations, languages, degrees, still you stand on the threshold.'" You have soared to the heights and plummeted each time to the depths. Another line that stands out simply says, quote, This accursed insomnia makes me sleazy. It seems clear, given Bradford's psychiatric history and the entries in his diary, that there was something at work inside of him that today we would definitely associate with any number of mental health issues. As a result, to this day, many in the field of psychology have studied his diary, in hopes of unlocking the vault into the darker depths of his psyche and what role it could have played on his behaviors. While generally Bradford was described positively, the FBI would later release a statement in which he was defined as intense and self-absorbed, prone to violent outbursts, and that he preferred a neat and orderly environment. Having three young sons in the home, that is not conducive to a neat and orderly environment." Thousands of sightings of Bishop have been reported over the years. A caller in the 1980s notified Montgomery County police that he believed he spoke with a man who could have been Bishop in the southwestern United States in 1980, but was unaware of the story until much later. None of these sightings could ever be confirmed, but there are three which authorities believe may have been legitimate. The first of these took place in July of 78 in Stockholm, Sweden. This report came from a woman who had previously known the Bishop family during the time they were in Ethiopia. According to her account, Bishop had grown a thick beard, and she'd seen him in a public park on several occasions. Reportedly, the woman said she was absolutely certain it was Bishop, but she didn't report the sighting until months later when she learned he was wanted for murder. As a result of this sighting, Swedish authorities launched a six-month investigation. The FBI sent an agent to the country to follow up, but nothing was ever found to prove Bishop had been in Sweden. The second sighting came the following year. In 1979, Roy A. Harrell Jr., the man who last spoke to Bradford at work the day of the murders, had an incredible encounter in Sorrento, Italy. According to Harrell, he was waiting to take a bus to Rome and stepped into the men's room before boarding. As he entered the restroom, he saw a bearded man who, judging from his clothes and appearance, he thought could be a transient. And according to Harrell, he stood beside the man at the sink and then turned and looked at him. Harrell would later explain, quote, In my mind's eye, I stripped off the beard and saw the Foreign Service officer I had known in D.C. I just impulsively said, You're Brad Bishop, aren't you? And he began trembling and shaking and said, Oh, God, no and turned around. I have no doubt it was him. Harold pursued the man, but he disappeared into the rainy afternoon. And the third sighting came fifteen years later, in September of 1994. A former neighbor, who had lived near the bishops in Bethesda, was boarding a train in Basel, Switzerland. According to the woman, as she took her seat on the train, she turned and looked out across the platform. At another train, and there, framed in the window, she saw a well-groomed man who she is certain was William Bradford Bishop. The woman explained that as soon as she spotted him, the doors closed and the train began moving, leaving her no time to act or get a closer look. Outside of these three sightings, all of which took place outside of the United States, authorities have never listed any other sightings as credible.
1: William Bradford Bishop has been missing since March of 1976. Having left behind a wealth of items and evidence, there are three items outside of Bradford himself that have never been located. His diplomatic passport, wallet, and the mini sledgehammer that was used to murder his wife, mother, and three young sons. For 43 years, Bishop has been in the wind with speculation rampant that he took his own life in the Great Smoky National Forest, or fled the country and is living abroad, or perhaps remained inside the United States, where he used his training and intelligence to carve out a new life for himself. Despite the vast amount of time that has elapsed, new details continue to emerge from time to time. Authorities have stated that it's possible Bradford was living in Sorrento, Italy, as recently as 2010. However, they also listed Switzerland, Eastern Europe, and even California as possible locations where Bradford may reside. In 2010, the FBI released a letter written by federal prison inmate Albert Kenneth Bankston, a convicted bank robber. In the months leading up to the murders, Bankston and Bradford exchanged several letters. Montgomery County Sheriff Ray Kite reported that after reading the letter and speaking with two individuals named in the letter it appeared that Bradford had been inquiring about hiring a shooter to commit murders for him in exchange for a clean passport. It's believed by law enforcement that Bradford first tried to hire someone to murder his family before choosing to do it himself. One man mentioned in the letter, David Paul Allen, was interviewed via telephone from prison and explained that Bradford had paid him and some others in cash and jewels, to pose as home repair workers and murder his family while he was on a trip overseas. Bradford was scheduled to travel to Geneva from January 27th to February 6th, 1976, having him returning less than a month before he himself would commit the murders. Bankston died in 1983, before the letter was discovered, and authorities were never able to question him about their correspondence. In one of the letters, Bankston wrote, quote, Now, in answer to your question, yes, I am most sure she is in the North Carolina State Penitentiary. This vague reference to a woman made authorities wonder if she could be the dark-skinned woman seen with Bradford in Jacksonville, North Carolina, the day after the murders. Could this be why Bradford went down to North Carolina in the first place? That answer remains unknown. In 2014, the remains of a John Doe who had been killed in a hit-and-run while walking along Alabama Highway an Alabama Highway near Scottsboro in 1981 were exhumed. The unidentified man bore physical similarities to Bradford, and these were recognized by Alabama police while going through records, at which time they found photos of the John Doe. The FBI was notified, and after some discussion, DNA was taken for comparison. After several weeks of eagerly waiting for the waiting, the FBI were given the bad news. The man was not William Bradford Bishop. It was another letdown, as just a few years earlier in 2011, fingerprint records were used to prove that two deceased men, one in China and the other in France, were not Bradford either. Also in 2014, the FBI enlisted the help of forensic artist Karen Taylor who created a sculpture of Bradford to reflect how he may appear at the age of 77. The sculpture was then mixed with digital image editing to show variations of Bradford with different hair lengths, hair colors, eyewear, and facial hair. On April 10, 2014, William Bradford Bishop was added to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. Just last year, on June 27, Bradford was removed from that list. The FBI later explained that they planned to replace the then 81-year-old with a more dangerous fugitive. When last seen, William Bradford Bishop was described as being a white male standing six feet one inch tall and weighing 180 pounds. He has brown eyes, and at the time, his hair was brown, though it may be gray and thinning now. Bradford has a cleft chin, a mole on his left cheek, and a six-inch surgical scar on his lower back. He was an accomplished outdoorsman and has a pilot's license. In his free time, he enjoys riding motorcycles and working out. He's reported to be fond of dogs, prefers drinking scotch or wine, enjoys peanuts and spicy foods. At the time of his disappearance, Bradford may have been in possession of his Yale-class ring and possibly his father's 38 revolver with the serial number C981967. If alive today, Bradford would be 82 years old. He is wanted on five counts of first-degree murder, and a $100,000 reward remains active.
0: Thank you for listening to Already Gone. Please take a moment to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you haven't listened to Don't Talk to Strangers, my long-form look at the Oakland County child murders, you can find Don't Talk to Strangers on your favorite podcatcher. We are 13 episodes in, and there is more to unravel with this unresolved case. Finally, if you need help being your best and reaching your goals, check out our sponsor, BetterHelp. When I learned that my father would not recover from his illness, I turned to BetterHelp for counseling, wisdom, and support. All of it done at my pace and on my schedule. I highly recommend BetterHelp. Use discount code GONE for 10% off your first month. Writing credit this week is shared with Stephen Pacheco, production support from Lisa Strawn at Spective Productions. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.